Welcome to the American Anthropological Association podcast miniseries in support of the 2022 annual meeting. I'm your host, Matt Arts, and on this miniseries, we'll be talking with AAA members about the theme of unsettling landscapes and how it relates to their work. We will also get their input on the greater Seattle area and what they think is important to see when you are in town for the conference. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts. I'm here today with Mary Gray for the Unsettling Landscapes uh, miniseries for the AAA annual meeting coming up this uh, November 9th through the 13th in Seattle, Washington. Mary is a senior principal researcher at Microsoft Research and is part of a panel session titled Bad Habitus Revisited Toward an Anthropology of the Multimodal. So we'll be talking a little bit again about the theme, about the panel, and uh, probably a little bit about tech as well. So Mary, thanks for joining us today. Would you mind uh, just telling everybody a little bit about your anthropological origin story? Sure. Hey, Matt. Thanks for the uh, the introduction and then for the invitation. Um, I I probably, like many anthropologists, have an odd origin story. I, I started in anthropology as an undergraduate. I took Native American studies at the same time, right as the Repatriation Act was going through Congress. So it was just a really interesting moment to um, come to anthropology and to Native American studies when it was grappling with the conflicting logics. In some cases, I thought they would just be so um, integrated and complementary, and I could see right away that there was um, to the to the annual conferences theme, to the annual meetings theme, um, a sense of contestation over landscapes. Who owns the right? to define that a cultural boundary, a cultural past. So from, from that experience, I tentatively entered an, an anthropology master's program, just trying to understand what, what else could I do with this approach to anthro, what else could I do with this approach to understanding the world. And I was also pretty uh, cliche, went to San Francisco, living the the good queer life uh, as a young um, youth activist and trying to understand what difference did this new technology called the internet make to political organizing. I wanted to study the U.S. I wanted to study young people in the rural parts of the United States particularly and identity. And um, friends in anthropology at the time said, you know, you should just cut bait anthropology won't be able to handle you. You need to try a different discipline. So I um, I actually went to a PhD program um, called Communication at UC San Diego, at University of California, San Diego, that was such the perfect home for anthropological work focused on really the intersections of different landscapes. And I just never stopped going to the AAA. And I eventually became part of its leadership um, and certainly a booster of anthropology from any place I've been. But I didn't really feel like I left anthropology. I've seen anthropology come to the conversations that that are most um, important to me, which is what difference can we make in the world and how do technologies have a particular kind of role in that work. And so you said, you know, you're interested in the internet, but um, tell us a little bit of just, you know, how you, you, you made your way there, because of course, 
uh, you know, it is uncommon for, I mean, it's increasingly common for many of us to work in tech, but it wasn't, you know, historically. So I think it's interesting because I, I feel like we were one of the last social sciences to really, um, particularly humanistic social sciences to, um, imagine contemporary technologies as a, um, as a space of possibilities, if you will, um, to the kind of conversation we'll have at AAA, to the habitus of of how we um, understand our our places in the world. So I think for me, I I came to think about technologies as a route into uh, questions like what are the politics of imagining you're more or less visible because you can literally put your voice online. Uh, this was pre-social media. <laughs> I mean, this is like really early days. So it was really, it was, it was imagining what it means to be so thoroughly mediated and reckoning with, aren't we always mediated? You know, so what does it suggest to us to think about the distribution of cultural understandings of belonging, particularly um, an, an identity like um, lesbian, gay, bi, trans, questioning. And, and as queer anthropology taught me to really think about the contestation of those terms, that they can be so deeply intimate and yet so much a part of um, a, a co-construction. Like how do the people around me seeing me or not um, challenging me or not, um, help me have a sense of who I am. You know, that, that, that identity making is, is by no means a solo act. And so technology's place in that just, it, it was such a, a way into the complexity of, and the dynamism of how we, um, come to see ourselves and then naturalize that, like how we, we really have such a naturalized sense of, what's true, um, who we are, who we love. And that for me is the fabric of, of anthropology. Those, those, um, the ways in which we imbibe those cultural categories and they become, um, so thoroughly, you know, a part of our skin. In those, you know, earlier days of the internet, pre-social media, how did you see, you know, how was identity construction maybe different than it is today? Oh, that's such a great question because I think that um, I think one of the most uh, compelling parts of studying technologies for the number of years that I have is seeing the return of what's considered novel or new or um, unique. And I, I feel like if there was a difference um, that I could point to, it's less about the, the technological, um, the, the technological, the technological uh, infrastructure and more about what is the environment, the ubiquity of these infrastructure now. So, you know, back in the day when the internet was something fairly um, um, novel in the sense that not everyone had access to it or it was curtailed, it was certainly, you know, still for some people, particularly in the rural United States, it was constantly bringing up how um, disjointed access was um, and what it meant for people to have to really navigate sharing access and how that would um, create so much uh, negotiation. It, it, for me, was a way of thinking about theories of, of the boundaries we tend when we're sharing um, critical infrastructure to 
uh, build out a sense of who we are and, and where we belong. But the thing that's changed now is with the um, what seems to be readily available technologies, our um, our interest in in um, questioning material that comes our way, our capacity to even question it. That's the thing that is shape shifting in front of us. Like our trust in institutions is um, certainly challenged in the mainstream in ways that are now to me start reflecting the kind of um, fear and mistrust that you could have seen from uh, any young person in, in rural parts of Southeast Appalachia navigating like what information should I put online? So they are in some ways are, are um, you know, are, are canaries in a coal mine of what it means to have diminished access, to be constantly having to think about who sees what's on your screen. They were monitored by their libraries and by their schools um, far before it became such a common thing for workplace analytics to be um, something that surveils all of us, for example. So the more things change, perhaps, the more they they um, start seeming the same. And now, you know, some of these changes actually right now, to tie it back to the theme, and I'd, I'd like to get your, you know, your, hear a little bit more about your interpretation of the theme, but many of these changes that are happening right now, you know, on the web are quite unsettling to many people. Um, arguably, it always was for some group of people, but it seems like right now there is a conversation happening that, you know, globally that takes it, you know, slightly a little bit more um, serious than, than 10, 15 years ago. So, you know, that could be maybe one way that we see some unsettling, but how do you see the theme and how do you relate it to technology? I mean, I think that there's nothing more unsettling than having to confront what we feel we can rely on or what we think is true is something we have to question. And it's such a, I don't want to say it's a luxury per se, it's a privilege to feel as though you can move through life not questioning your sources of support, not questioning your sources of security, um, not questioning your identity, actually never having anyone else question your identity or your right to belong. To me, that's the, the, um, the importance of this theme is drawing attention to the, the growing awareness of the questioning of our rights to exist in ways that are um, to the existential crisis of climate that resonate with ways in which that is something anthropology is quite good at, is plumbing and surfacing how many people's lives um, are questioned and unsettled at to the benefit of of parties that we in a in a mainstream setting just have thought, well, that's just how that's just how government works or that's just how things go when you're looking for resources and in scarce resources in places that have them. Like I feel like it, to me it's a way for anthropology to say um, unsettling as an action that comes with um, power relations always. And I would rather look at the ways in which everyday 
people navigate that truth. That that is the the unsettlingness is that is what is that is what is in front of us all. That is literally what is in front of us all every single day. It's wonderful when you don't know that <laughs> or don't feel that. But I feel like it's a an opportunity to think about um, to genuinely bring to the conversation to whose benefit are we unsettled? Who is unsettled? Who are we? What are those landscapes? Who defined those landscapes? Why do we see them as settled? Who are the settlers? Like those are, anthropology is built for these questions and to make them something other than empty, rhetorical, um, um, straw people for us to um, to um, mourn. I mean, they, they're real questions for us to address, to apply what we know, to create other possibilities. And, and speaking of possibilities, and, and you mentioned power relations and, and staying with just in the theme of the internet for a second. So, you know, I grew up like in a pre-World Wide Web bulletin board environment. And I mean, I suppose it might not have been truly pre-World Wide Web. It just might have been that that didn't really escape CERN as fast, you know. Yeah. And so nonetheless, you know, I, in that early period, it was very utopian, you know, the ideals around it. And to some degree, we've achieved those ideals in that it's been democratized, but it also has, you know, created new problems that were unanticipated, you know. And so like in, in the early days, maybe the concept of democratizing it and sort of flattening everything was was unsettling to some. Today, we've somewhat, you know, achieved some of those goals, but now we've seen a dark side of that, which is everybody has a voice, including those who, you know, want to attack others um, or organize to, you know, physically attack something like the Capitol. And so how have you, you know, how, how have you dealt with all of that and those changes? Yeah. No, I think that I think the hardest thing for me as somebody who's a relentless optimist <laughs> who really started studying in a naive way, I would say, started studying the internet as a change agent or actant of some kind, um, that I imagined it was this conduit for like connecting people who would be able to organize and galvanize and um, support each other. I certainly um, understood that that included trolls and haters and um, that the the technologies themselves don't promise anything. They they're not neutral by any um, by any means either. But in thinking about what we see as that um, that side we don't want to see, I think it's the place for us to be able to look at what do we um, where can we push democratization? How can we think about the equity? that is a part of the responsibility of making technologies not just um, delightful or fun, but to be able to see them when they um, move to, to um, necessary, not just nice to have. And I think we, we, as we were democratizing, we didn't at the same time track when did this become core infrastructure uh, in, in all the senses of that term and what comes with that like i think it's it's 
it's the ideal of democracy coming to grips with the reality of um, of power relations. Back to what we were talking about, like that that takes constant work to say uh, my access is probably costing someone else a lack of access. What is my active role in um, not just democratizing but also um, building out equity, so that I I. I do think now, and I probably thought this 20 years ago, that it is so critical for us to see um, the importance of the connectivity of these digital technologies as necessary, not sufficient to the ideal of democracy. And if that's the case, then what comes with the bad of of people voicing things that are um, painful and threatening and um, destructive, it's consequences. I mean that we we quite literally have thought like I mean I think about Butler in this way like excitable speech when Judith Butler wrote that book. It's there is there are consequences that come with language. You know, linguistic anthropology is fantastic at showing the power of words. So if we take that seriously, we haven't even started to build the systems of accountability. Um, and I mean that in a social sense. I don't think the technology becomes responsible for itself in some magical AI way. It is we haven't been willing to, um, whether we're talking about regulation, which we should be, we're talking about what it means to have a deep social understanding of technology. I would say we haven't even started. I, I think more anthropologists need to be in the mix. I'm, I'm, um, I'm a pretty big booster for getting more anthropology into this conversation because right now it's, um, it's, it's technologies are seen as tools, and this is the perfect discipline to complicate that very simplistic way of thinking about what is digital technology. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot in there, but, you know, the interesting thing about tools is they often beget more tools. And, you know, I, I too think more anthropologists need to be involved, but if anthropologists aren't in positions to really influence, uh, not just departmental decision-making, but really like influence the business model, especially an advertising business model, do you see any, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this in air quotes for the podcast, but any solution that is going to address this, or do you think it comes down to regulation? Both and. Um, technology and the tech industry is the most unregulated, um, socially consequential industry out there. I would say, can we imagine a world of biomedicine where anybody can do a clinical trial? We can A-B test on anybody we want. We don't have to talk to them about it. We just, you know, do it and see what happens next. That's inconscionable. Um, so to me, it, I think there's no question um, there has to be a regulatory framework that isn't looking for the aftermath of what technologies do, but is quite literally saying, the construction, if we if we buy into theories of what you know what becomes us, how tools become us, how we become entangled in what we build to build out our lives, if we take that um, warrant, then that means we would 
absolutely need to be critically analyzing from a qualitative vantage point, an ethnographic longitudinal vantage point, what are the myriad ways social relationships, institutions, histories are part of the um, the mix that can't be telemetry. You can't sense that through metrics or telemetry because it's antithetical to what it is you're looking for. You're looking for the moment before people are reacting to something built. We don't really yet have an approach to industry that says you are responsible for thinking about that first. You have to do the equivalent of a site survey that any, you know, any builder would have to do to think about landscape, right? To think about what's unsettled by building there. So, you know, I think that's, again, what, what helps me stay optimistic is we haven't even started to think about technologies with this, with this anthropological framework that would see them as, as sinew, you know, it's that it's, it is connective tissue in, in, in more ways than one. Like we're, we're not just collect, you know, connected as atomized individuals. We're socially exchanging quite a bit here. So, as much as I think regulation is necessary, I, I don't even think we have the right framework yet for thinking, well, how would we approach building environments? Because that is effectively what we have here. We don't have simply tools that are in any one person's hand. They are um, conveyors of meaning. And what discipline better um, trained, positioned, um, and as you said, currently not on the scene, certainly in departments, but in industry, to be able to put this um, approach, this epistemology, at a place where it is um, best able to say, what are we taking for granted right now as we build something? That's, we, we don't do that yet. And so then where do you want to see anthropologists working? Because UX research, while it's, you know, nice, light, family-sustaining salaries, it's not enough, right? We we need to be uh, in other roles than that. You know, I work in product management, which I always recommend people look at. I think business strategy roles are important, but there's, you know, there's obviously many more. So what are you seeing in the landscape that you're involved in? So so I sit in and, and have intentionally tried to keep feet um, keep my feet in both the world of um, academic scholarship and within university settings to understand my relationship to this industry setting where I do basic research. And to me, basic research is understanding those those um, cultural, social dynamics. How are people making sense of their world? Like, what are the the collective sense making practices? What does that look like? Um, and and not just today, which I think most of user research and even within product management, there's such there's no room, there's no air around. Give me two weeks, you know, three weeks maybe, and tell me what's happening here. There's no way that that can um, surface more than um, for a few problems. What you need to understand. It's the first step in my in in, in my um, sense of where could we be. Anthropology could be through the entire life cycle and, and beyond the release of anything. It could be part of the chain of accountability we all need. What's happening here once something's 
out in the world. Look, we haven't we haven't done that yet. So it's not that I think anthropology can solve everything. Um, so much as I think right now, user research, product management are given way too much, too late to be able to balance um, the social needs that um, have to be top of mind as a group of, of builders are assembling. So a lot of my work right now, concretely, is thinking what does that innovation cycle look like if you are engaging community organizations, not as tokenized instantiations of a group, but rather as, um, as a proxy, as a moment where you can say, okay, from this I can have some sense of the, the, the lay of the land. Like what are the kinds of relationships among institutions and the systemic racism that might be setting up which CB community-based organizations are listened to or not. All of that might end up on the cutting room floor, but any good ethnography <laughs> has a lot on the cutting room floor. And that to me is um, being able to see the value of what we um, don't build as shaping what we could create that isn't um, meant to um, be the thing that serves all, but is quite literally constantly thinking about who are we missing? What are we missing? Like that, that is an objective. I, I just don't, within market logics, we haven't had room to do that. So I, I'm advocating really hard for let's um, kind of blow up the categories of user research. Let's think about usage. You know, let's really move to thinking about um, the kinds of causes and conditions that shape um, whether some a piece of technology could even be meaningful to someone or groups of people. And, um, you know, I'll just throw this out as one last question on this topic, but where do you think the role of being a founder is for you know, a founder anthropologist? You know, there's, there's not many of us who are, you know, again, we have sometimes a hard task ahead of us if we're going to influence a big organization, even with the kind of research you're doing. So do you think more of us just need to actually start practices that are not you know, just research consulting companies, but in many ways, tech companies are similar. Oh, that's a hard one. That's a hard one, Matt. That's really hard because I think, um, you know, I, it would be easy for me to say we need both. But I, I do think that the founder who can see something, particularly from um, this kind of epistemological grounding that says I, I can't possibly abstract what all humankind need, like starting from that, particularly within tech, is quite exceptional because most founders are thinking maximize, right? Maximize impact, max scale. And so we do need founders who are coming from that place of, of, um, of um, the universal in particular, <laughs> you know, that they're, that they're, they have that training to be able to, to think about the, um, what they probably see as the common thing, that they would have the training to say, where did I get that idea? And I think it's it's a good thing to hold on to, like, okay, I'm building this. This is, this is the direction I'm going. It's when a founder imagines they can capture the world. You know, when that starts seeping in, I think that's when things go awry. So having 
more of founders who are willing to concede, I'm starting from this place, I see a particular problem in this frame, you know, whatever it is that I think I might be able to address, and to be able to invite this kind of interrogation. Like it's, it's, it's quite uncommon to be able to sit with the unsettling um, sense of how incomplete anything we create to solve a problem that's a technical artifact, how incomplete it will be, how it will fail. Like how do we retrieve that sense of failure is openness, you know? It's, it's conceding um, that there's more work to do. And I just, wouldn't it be great if that didn't feel like a shortcoming, you know, but felt like an opening for someone who has a different perspective. I mean, it's, it's, um, I know that sounds awfully um, optimistic. Well, no, thanks for sharing. And so um, maybe to wrap up, I'd like to, you know, have you share a little bit more about the, about the panel. Um, you mentioned the cutting room floor. And of course, a reference like that makes me think of like the literal kind of movie cutting room floor. And yours is on multimodal. So uh, you want to just maybe share a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about this panel because um, it's members of Ethnographic Terminalia. They're a group who have been um, on the scene in the American Anthropological Association for, oh my goodness, I think more than a decade. I feel I I don't want to age any of us. Um, and they've been providing um, these fantastic installations of sound and visual work that press on what are the different ways in which we can um, sense the world through our ethnographic materials. Like what else can anthropologists be bringing from the work they do for people to, um, to connect with and also contest what it is we, we feel we've found. And so um, ethnographic Terminalia's founders wanted to revisit um, one of their um, earlier installations on bad habitus. And so it is to continue to call the question, particularly in uh, to your earlier question, are these new modes of interacting that are shockingly ubiquitous, like being in a video conference. I don't know how many of us thought we would be living so much of our lives in a video conference, which is a, an iteration of a um, of uh, augmented reality, mixed reality, things that are in gaming, things that seem fanciful now, but um, are within you know within our grasp to see as as ways to um, I don't know if I'm a fan of the word augment, but to um, give us a sense of the extension of ourself into space and what a good time to revisit that. And I feel like the theme of thinking about as we are um, building technologies that give us that, uh, that, that sense that we can reach and touch all things, good time to be reminding us of um, our place in the world and what right do we have in those moments of like, I'm going to visit a mosque in this location and not think about that's a representation, that's a flattening of um, people's worlds. You know, how do I keep aware of, of that so that I don't start occupying that, um, you know, God's eye view of the world? 
Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Mary, thanks for taking the time. Um, We appreciate having you on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. We look forward to seeing you in Seattle this November. For more information, check out the conference website at annualmeeting.americananthro.org. And if you like what you hear, please also check out the AAA podcast directory for other great anthropology podcasts, including my own, Anthropology in Business and Anthro to UX. Thanks again, and see you in November.